Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. When Luke talks about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, he does it in four blocks of text, four little vignettes, and each of those blocks of text, Paul deals with a conflict. We've seen one of them, those 12 disciples comprising the first of those little cameos, Paul's conflict with erroneous sub-Christian belief. And now we have the second of those, and it's his conflict with the synagogue. Then there's a third one, which we'll see in a fortnight's time, his conflict with pagan necromancers. And the fourth one, a conflict with those who made a living from false religion. And each of those conflicts will have a defining effect on his ministry or on the local church. So we're going to look at this second conflict, that inevitable eventual move from teaching in the synagogue to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And as usual, and to make it easy for you, I have three simple headings. I want you to see when the occasion comes for separation, legitimate separation. And I want you to see an obligation to be tenacious in the Lord's work. And then finally, I want you to see the outcome of sacrificial service for the Lord. Three simple things in this text. An outcome, an occasion for legitimate separation. So we start with verse 8 where Paul went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples. You see, it was Paul's ministry strategy, his evangelistic strategy, as we've already noticed, that when he went into a new town or a city, he would go first to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel to the Jews. After all, the good news was for the Jew first. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he was consistent. He was consistent in his methods, and he was consistent in his message. And he was in the synagogue, disputing and persuading. A very bold, unapologetic approach in his his way of teaching about the Lord's kingdom. He taught the things concerning the kingdom of God. It was a rounded message. It was the whole counsel of God. Remember what we've seen over and over again, that when Paul taught in the synagogue, or as we see in the lecture hall, his method was to teach in a catechetical manner, to sit down uh, for hours on end to 
gather disciples, a small group of disciples round him, and to teach them the things of God, to catechize them, to take their questions, to answer them, to dispute with them, to teach them until they came to a full understanding of Christian doctrine. Now on his first visit to Ephesus, some time before this, on the way to Jerusalem, he'd been well received. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 19, it says that he came to Ephesus and left them there. It can't be right, but we'll go with it. Uh, entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. And um, just give me a wee minute here to look back. That would be when he was leaving Corinth, so it must have been earlier in the text. I think I put a wrong reference number there. Anyway, when he returned, here's the main point. When he returned, he was welcomed. And he taught there for a period of three months, and that, of course, is fairly unprecedented to date. In most synagogues, Paul is very quickly expelled. Um... And there's no mention here of the leaders of the synagogue plotting against him, just like they did in Corinth. Let's look at these, this incident. Verse 9. When diverse were hardened and believed not. So we have hard-hearted unbelievers. Some of those who heard the gospel simply became hardened to it. They refused to believe. How stubborn. How rebellious are the wicked hearts of unconverted men and women. Not content with their own disbelief, they spoke out to discourage others from coming to Christ. These hard-hearted unbelievers see their wicked tactics. They didn't forbid Paul from preaching. Do you see that? They didn't forbid Paul from preaching. They simply began to preach themselves. They spoke evil of that way. They're more subtle. They stood up themselves before the assembly, before the multitude, the gathered congregation, and they spoke evil of the way. They preached against Christianity. It's pure evil. They drove him out of the synagogue, not by banning him, but by deliberately undermining and opposing all that he was teaching. After I left Albert Bridge, I went to preach one Lord's Day evening at a Reformed church. One of the elders said to me after the service, if you preach down at Albert Bridge the way you preach here, it's no wonder they sacked you. <laughs> I says, believe you me, they didn't sack me. They wouldn't do that. I've never sacked a minister. I was free to preach the gospel. I could preach any way I wanted. I could preach on the Lord's Day evening Christian doctrine, reform doctrine. I could preach Calvinism. Some of them might say on the way to the door, you know, I didn't agree with something you said there. But sure, that could happen here too, couldn't it? It could happen anywhere. Nobody gets everything right. 
So every Lord's Day morning, I dedicated it to biblical teaching, and nobody complained, and no one said very much. Do you know what they did? They organized wee meetings of their own. I could be preaching the gospel on the Lord's Day evening, and on the Friday night I'd be coming out of the church and a man walking in with a giant plant under his arm. And I stopped him and I says, are you looking for something? He says, I'm looking for the gardening club. He says, I didn't know there was a gardening club. Apparently there is. And then he was going, he was going in to talk about gardening or you'd get somebody else would invite Naomi Long to come in to talk about the Alliance Party's latest policies on all the wickedness that she's promoting and nobody would tell me until it was all over and you'll have somebody else going and plotting away or run down to the Woman's World Day of Prayer in the local chapel. All these things going on behind the scenes. They didn't sack you. They just made it impossible for you to stay. You see... These people would have been inviting in people who were doing the very opposite to what Paul was doing in Ephesus. So they had hard-hearted unbelievers with these wicked tactics. Now look at Paul's reaction to that. Paul left the synagogue. He couldn't continue in fellowship with that kind of thing. Sure, he couldn't. He left. He separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. He left the synagogue and he took with him his Christian disciples because it was right to preserve them from the wickedness that they were being taught. Anybody who's got any kind of Christian influence on the World Wide Web at present, well, no, you have to be really careful. I have a website. Every sermon that I prepare is on the website. Somebody once said to me, are you one of these ministers that downloads your sermons from the World Wide Web? I said, no, I'm not. I'm one of those ministers that puts my sermons on the World Wide Web so that everybody else on the World Wide Web can see that I haven't plagiarized them from the World Wide Web. And they're all there to read. Now, I frequently get comments that I have to filter out from Christadelphians attacking the Trinity on my website and I have to be careful and, and, and get rid of them and I frequently and no later than today have Muslims trying to comment now I have, I have comment moderation on and that's the reason for it because it is right that people who are reading the sermons that I have prepared, that I'm using to try and teach Christian discipleship to people, they have to be protected and preserved from falsehood that's going on in the World Wide Web. That's why I just don't let anybody and everybody give their opinion. I don't mind about some things. There was a 
certain friend of mine who wrote an article in response to one of my articles on baptism. And he says, I take the opposite view from you. I'm going to put it on your website. My response was, you do that. I'm quite happy with that. Quite happy. But I'm not going to let anybody attack the Trinity. Not in my space. And not in a place where I'm going to be responsible for other people's spiritual well-being. Paul's reaction, not only did he leave the synagogue, but he took his Christian disciples with him, preserving them from the malign influence of hard-hearted unbelievers and bringing them together into a new assembly. That's the decision that we have to take sometimes. When do we walk away? When do we take the decision that we can no longer stay in a church or an assembly? Paul's departure from the synagogue at Ephesus was a separation. It wasn't a schism. There was very good reason for it. The unbelievers separated themselves. The believers separated themselves because of the attack on true biblical doctrine and to protect the souls of the people from ungodly influence. So Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Here's a glorious promise for those of us who have had the courage to leave those situations. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. There is always a question of timing and a question of being sure. But when the gospel is under attack and Christian doctrine is under attack, there comes a legitimate occasion for separation. Secondly, I want you to see the obligation for tenacity. Look at verse 9 again. Disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus, and this continued by the space of two years. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say next. But I hope, to, I hope to illustrate for you Paul's um, indefatigable tenacity in doing the Lord's work. I'm not doing it to try and make you or me feel bad about our lack of commitment, as would so frequently happen in some evangelical circles. There's hardly people in, there's some people in pulpits, and they can hardly speak uh, to believers without criticizing them for their lack of tenacity. A young man was installed as the new minister of a church and 
His time there was short-lived. One of the members of that church confided that they soon got tired of being continually berated from the pulpit, being told the reason the church wasn't growing, the reason that souls weren't being saved, the reason that bodies weren't being wonderfully healed was because you in the pews don't have enough faith. You're not praying enough. You're not giving enough. You're not working enough. You're not reading your Bible enough. You're not seeking the Holy Spirit enough. And it just went on and on and on and on. I only heard that young man preach on one or two occasions, but sure enough, the messages were all about our spiritual failures. Paul's an example for us here. But an example of dedicated service in response to God's love. Not an attempt to please God by burning oneself out or trying to coax God to move by our activities. God moves in his sovereignty. Let's go back to our text. Nine, verse 9. He's disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. Now there's a whole lot in there. Give me a minute. Because the question that always begs to be answered here is if Paul is teaching in the school of Tyrannus, where on earth is Tyrannus? What's he doing? Huh? What is Tyrannus doing? I mean, Tyrannus doesn't sound like the most obliging fellow, does he? Um, it's highly unlikely, even giving the propensity of parents nowadays to give their children very strange names, Tyrannus doesn't sound like a name you're going to give. So imagine calling your child Tyrant. There was a woman came to me one day and she told me she wanted to have her baby done. You know what I mean? And I says, oh yes, you've had a wee baby. What are you going to call him? I'm going to call him Antonio Orion Zeus. I says, well, I suppose when he gets older, you can call him Tony. It'll sound a bit better. Oh, no, she says, I'm not calling him Tony. I'm calling him Aunt after Aunt and Dick. I says, well, I'll tell you what. You see, when we come to the bit, when we come to name the baby, it turned out to be a, a thank service of thanksgiving. And I said, when you see when we come to the bit, I'm going to say to the dad, what do you call this child? Because no way I'm calling some child Antonio Orion Zeus in a Christian church. Call your way in Tarrant. I don't think so. See, I think Tarrant is hardly likely to be a name. I think it's probably a nickname. I think that Tarrant was a nickname given to this character by his students because of his teaching methods. I think he was like some of my teachers back in Balligan Martin Secondary School, way back in the 1960s. He was a bit of a tyrant. That's what he was. And he wasn't an obliging character. Not the kind of person who's going to cancel his Greek philosophy classes to lend his schoolhouse to some Jewish rabbi. We do get a wee clue to the mystery. Some of the Reformed commentators tell us that there's a wee bit of an addition to the text that the received text doesn't pick up. And it's quoted in some of these Reformed commentaries. And it says, 
disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus from the fifth to the tenth hour. Now that's actually quite important. And it makes a lot of sense. And it tells us a whole lot about Paul. It tells us, first of all, that Paul was working when everybody else was sleeping. Because the typical working day in Ephesus would start at 7 o'clock in the morning. Like Spain, if you've been to Spain, all the shops close at lunchtime. And they open again at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Same in Italy, same in all those Mediterranean countries. Same in Ephesus. They had a siesta. And the siesta was from about 11 o'clock till about 4 So what's happening here is that work ceased and the city fell quiet. And when work would recommence, all the shops and industries would open and work would then end at 9.30 when the workers could have a meal and have a rest. Between 11 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it was too warm to work, so they slept. And there was a saying that in Ephesus there were more people asleep at one o'clock than there were at one o'clock in the morning. When Paul should have been sleeping, when he should have been resting through the long Ephesian siesta period, Paul was in the lecture hall. He was preaching and teaching and disputing. Tyrannus and his students would have been off for their break. Paul would be tired and he'd be far too hot like you are tonight. But every day, six days a week, for two years solid, he taught in the heat. Somebody calculated that that was 3,120 hours of lecturing. Kent Hughes refers to this as a killer schedule. It tells us that Paul was working when others were sleeping. And it tells us that Paul had enthusiastic students because there were people who were willing to come and sit through that heat and listen. And it tells us not only that Paul was working while others were sleeping, but that Paul was working while others were working. That's where the schedule gets really tight. Because not only was Paul keeping up a teaching schedule that would shame any modern Bible college curriculum, but during the working hours, he was earning his living. He was a stitcher, like my mother except that my mother stitched cloth and Paul stitched canvas and that was hard labour and he would sit all day forcing that big needle through that cloth and he would sit there from early morning till 11 o'clock and then he would get up and he would go round to the school hall and he would teach until 4 o'clock and he'd go back to his work and he'd stitch until half nine at night. Determined that his teaching ministry would be no burden to anyone. So in chapter 20, when he gives his farewell address, he says to the elders... I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to them that are with me. So Paul's doing his full day's work. He's doing it six days a week and he's teaching every day for five hours, every day for two years. Why did he do it? 
Is he trying to earn some kind of a crown in heaven? Is he trying to prove to God Almighty that he's worthy of his love and his salvation? Is he trying to bring down and call down God's blessing? No, what drives Paul is that the love of God he experienced in Christ had to be shared with others in the method that the master taught. Time's almost gone. Can't go any further. Look at the outcome of Paul's work very quickly. Last bit. And God wrought, oh sorry, Tim, this continued for, by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Three ways that his tenacity and his faithfulness to the Lord's work is rewarded, geographically and culturally. Paul's ministry in the synagogue was just three months. In the lecture hall, it was two years. In Acts chapter 20, he was in Ephesus, he says, for three years. So what was he doing with the extra nine months? That's not accounted for. He must have been preaching out around the place, out around the hinterland, preaching around the area, around the Roman province of Asia, so that all those who heard the gospel in that land heard it from a faithful teacher. And we know that others were active with him. Epaphras was in Colossae, not too far away. And of course, being in the lecture hall, not only the Jews and the proselytes could hear the gospel, but the the Gentiles could hear it as well. All those that dwelt in Asia, the whole province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul's work was blessed geographically and culturally and miraculously. I'm always interested in this little verse, that God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought onto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the disciples departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Do you know, there was a, a female gospel singer from America. I wonder if you know her name. And she was a big woman. And whenever the spotlights and the stage were on her, I think she sweated profusely when she was singing. And she always had a hanky in her hand. And she waved it about when she sang. And she dramatically wiped her brow with it and all. And the hanky was always there. And of course, wonder of wonders, on the way out through the door, you could go to the concession place. And you could buy a hanky just like hers. I don't know whether it had any special powers. Maybe she had her sweat on it. But actually, that's not far off what Paul's doing here, apart from the money. Those were the days of the apostles. And in those formative days of the church, some very special miracles and and signs are pointing men and women to Christ. It's not Paul that's doing these miracles. It's God himself. Paul would not and could not claim any credit for them. But people were taking clothing that Paul had touched or clothing that he had worn uh, as he was stitching the canvas And in the heat of the day, he would have a bandana on his head, 
to mop away the sweat. He would have a, a leather apron to protect his clothes. Those solid, stained, soiled, sweaty garments had no miraculous powers in and of themselves. But maybe as symbols of the faithfulness and the sacrificial service of the apostle, somehow they spoke to people of the God whom he served and he used them as visual aids so that they would find help in times of need. Geographically and culturally, miraculously, victoriously. Faithful ministry is a terror to the devil, isn't it? It says here that evil spirits went out of them. Do you know the best way evil spirits go out of people? When they come to Christ for salvation. This spreading of the gospel across the land has a huge spiritual effect on the land. Evil spirits are being driven out. There's so much evil in the world today. Evil is everywhere. It's rampant. We're right to oppose it ethically and politically, wherever it appears. But ultimately, the defeat of evil is only achieved by the gospel. By the preaching of the word of God, it's to the Lord that we look to bring his godly kingdom in, to establish his reign in people's hearts all over the world. Psalm 66, say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Is it any wonder that our Puritan and covenanting forefathers were post-millennialists? They were looking for the victory of the Lord. So Paul's second dispute, his departure from the Jewish synagogue, his establishing of the Christian assembly, and the church has expanded again. The work is continuing.